young adult pastor here at South Bay Community Church. Good morning. I'm just glad to see you guys all this morning. You, you guys haven't heard the word yet. Why are you clapping? I'm just saying my name. We all have a name. Well, this morning we're just going to talk about the three R's of reconciliation. It's, uh, it's going to be a good time together. I'm excited. Um, Pastor Long shared a story a little while ago. I'm not sure if you some, of you, some of you might remember this, but a guy who was telling his friend that he and his wife had a fight the night before. He said, yeah, my wife was so upset, she went historical. <laughs> his friend was like, wait, 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 don't you mean hysterical? He's like, no, 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 I mean historical. She brought up everything I've ever done in our relationship. <laughs> I love my wife. She's, she has uh, amazing, amazing qualities of a woman of God, uh, character, uh, faith, patience, good memory. <laughs> Sometimes I get tempted to take memory supplements just so I just to balance out the playing field a little bit because I got bad memory. You know, I, I feel like if only I remembered what I did in the first place, then I wouldn't think so highly of myself when we get into these confrontations arguments sometimes and maybe save a couple rounds. But I'm thankful I have a forgiving wife. Raise your hand if it was difficult to forgive somebody in the past. Raise your hand. Is it difficult to forgive? Yes. Absolutely. It's not always do, easy to do that, especially when people are capable of such heinous crimes as we saw this week. So this morning, we're going to look at this tremendously difficult topic of forgiveness and how some guy named Joseph might teach us a thing or two. So Bailey did a wonderful job reading the scripture. Let me give you some context to what she read. You might have heard of this guy named Joseph. He was in a family, had 12 brothers. And out of the 12, he was the youngest. He was given a coat of colors because he was favored by his father. And he would wear it with pride. How do you think this would make his other 11 brothers feel? Pretty happy, right? Good for you. No. And then to add to that, he had a couple dreams where he would be bowed to by his family. Or, at least symbolically, people would be bowing to him. And he would smartfully and wise, wisely share that dream with his family, that everyone's going to bow to him someday. <laughs> and, of course, they happily responded again with joy. No, actually, they were pretty mad about that. They were mad enough to sell him into slavery. They saw a passing caravan and they said, let's get rid of this guy. So they sold their family member, their youngest brother, into slavery. And he became a slave in Egypt. And he even worked his way up as a slave. The hand of God was upon this man. I believe he was 17 when he was sold. And he worked his way up. So he was top of the household. And he was managing all of the property of this captain of Egypt in the house. But one day, this wife of the captain looked upon him 
and, and something happened where she, she wanted to lie with him. He didn't want to lie with her. He ran away. She got mad and jealous and angry. So she accused him of rape. And from there, he was thrown into prison as a slave to a prisoner. And, but yet the hand of God was upon him. So even in prison, he would work his way up. And now he'd be in charge of the entire prison. And even the guards would put him over the other prisoners. Well, through a sequence of events, somehow he got in front of Pharaoh because Pharaoh had some dreams and he needed some interpreting and he heard that this guy named Joseph could interpret dreams. So he stepped in front of Pharaoh and he helped interpret some dreams and before you knew it, Joseph, this Hebrew nobody of a family of 12 boys, as the youngest, was sold into slavery, put in prison, now... After interpreting Pharaoh's dream, Pharaoh gives him second in command of all of Egypt. Now, there's a famine in all of the land. Joseph's brothers heard there was food in Egypt. So they travel a long way to come before Pharaoh in Egypt to ask for food. Now, just take a guess. Take a guess. Who was in charge of distributing the food? It really adds new meaning to be careful of the toes you step on today because they might be connected to the behind of the person you need to kiss tomorrow. Well, now, I, I, I'm not saying, I'm not saying we're not, we're going to, you know, be careful of stepping on toes because so we, we might kiss their behind. We're just, we, we might be careful and treat people with love because we honor God and there's no hidden agenda and ulterior motive there. I'm not going to be nice to you because I need you in the future. I'm not saying that, but it does shed some new light on that phrase. So they're standing in front of him. He has all the power in the world to smite them, to get his, to get even. These were the guys that put him through all of that. I believe it was from age 17 to age 30 he suffered through that because he was sold by his own family members. He's nice to them, and he brings his entire family over. He invites their father, his father, and reunites everyone together. But when the father dies... That's when they get nervous. That's when they get really nervous. That's when they go, oh, dad's dead. Remember what we did to Joseph? This might be a time where he gets his. And this is where Bailey did a wonderful job of reading the passage. When Joseph's brothers saw that his father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil. So they're in front of Joseph And Joseph says this to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive today. So do not fear, I will provide you for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Incredible response. Incredible response. Incredible. Derek Kidner wrote a commentary on Genesis. And in this commentary, he says how this response to his family illustrates a trifecta response of forgiveness, which I have labeled the three R's. That in his response of, to his family, he is demonstrating the three ways and ways of understanding forgiveness 
The first, refusing God's chair. The second, rising to God's view. And the third, receiving God's love. And that was where we will spend our morning. The first, Joseph refused God's chair. In verse 19, he says, Am I in the place of God? He refuses God's chair. This means to leave all writings of wrongs to God, to not sit in the judge's seat, but to trust that God will bring vindication his way, his time. When Joseph says, am I in the place of God? He's saying, you have wronged me. You have hurt me. Because of you, I've been shackled up, beat up, locked up. And now that I have the power and authority to get you back, I won't. Because that's God's job. What an incredible response. He refuses God's chair. There used to be these nice red chairs here. I'm not sure where they went. That would have been a nice illustration. Refusing that nice chair, that red leather chair that was there. Just picture it with me in your mind. The same thing happens with David and Saul. David is king of Israel. And there's this up-and-coming little kid named David. Wait, Saul. Saul. Saul was king of Israel. David is up-and-coming little kid. And after they come back from battle, they'd hear people sing. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And that would make Saul, the current king, pretty pissed off. So he puts it upon himself to hunt down David and take him out. But in a moment of vulnerability, David cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. When he could have killed him, when he could have eliminated the threat, he cuts off a slice of his robe, he spares his life, and then he confronts him from a distance. He says, look, look what I have done. I could have, I could have, I could have eliminated you when you were hunting me down, but I chose not to. And this is what he says in 1 Samuel 24, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. Just like Joseph, he refuses God's judgment seat. It's when you decide to take things into your own hands, to pay retribution is when you make the biggest mistake. The fastest way, Tim Keller says, who is a pastor in New York, the fastest way to become like Satan is to become like God. You want to make decisions that only God should be making? That's the fastest way to be like Satan. Keller continues to say, however, the fastest way to be like God is to refuse to be God. Humbly refuse God's chair. Refuse the opportunities you have for payback. Refuse the ability to inflict pain and to wish ill will against those who have wronged you. Bailey is part of our youth ministry, and I'm very proud of her. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, Bailey. There was an incident where she was on campus, and her friends or people started spreading rumors about her. They started talking behind about, her, about her behind her back on campus and started spreading. And unlike any other 15-year-old girl, 16-year-old girl who would go home, bust out their cell phone and blast them on Twitter or call up their friends, hey, let's take them out or front them. She decides to call one of our mentors, Shondell, I don't know where you're at, 
But she decides to call one of our mentors because we have a mentorship program in our youth ministry. And she calls her and says, hey, can I just talk this over with you? Can we pray together? I, this happened. I, I need help right now. And she turns to God instead of fighting back fire with fire. And decided, decided not to fight back like everyone else usually does. She left it to God who sees all wrongs done against humanity. And as in Isaiah 61, 8 says, I, the Lord God, love justice. And in Jeremiah 32, I am the Lord who performs mercy and justice and righteousness in this earth. Trust that he will bring about his vindication, his way, his time. God's silence does not equate to his absence. Sometimes we think nothing's happening, nothing's happening. That doesn't mean he's not doing anything. This is freeing. Understanding this allows us to be liberated from the burning sensations of bitterness and unforgiveness. Reverend King said, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. For the sake of your own well-being, refuse God's chair. That rhymed. <laughs> Refuse God's chair is the first R that Joseph illustrates. The second R, he rises to God's view. How are we doing, my youth in the back? Remix, all the way up high to me. Y'all good? Good to see y'all. Good. Just making sure. Normally, they're closer to me, so I can you know, keep them in check when I, when I preach, but they're kind of way over there, so just to make sure you guys are. <laughs> Second R, rise to God's view. In verse 20, Joseph then follows, am I in God's place? Am I God? He says in verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Rising to God's view means to see God's hand in man's malice. When Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God meant it for good, he's saying, your bullet to kill me was God's act to help me. Your words to cut me was God's script to love me. There's nothing you can do to beat God. You can't phase me. You can't phase God. There's nothing you can do in your tiny arsenal that will override God's love for me. As it says in Romans 8, 28, uh, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Rising to God's view means that while you're under attack, feel tremendous pain, you trust that God is still working it out for your benefit in the end. Yes, there is real pain when you're cheated on by the person you love. Yes, there's real pain when you're abused by the people that are supposed to protect you. Yes, there is real pain when you're hated on by haters for no reason at all. But just like Joseph, you can say to them, you intended it for harm, but God meant it for good. Try to think of an illustration for this. Kind of tough, but here's one. So bear with me. Poker. It's a game where you try to have a hand that beats other hands. I had to say that because in the first service, people, someone came up to me like, I didn't know what poker was, so I didn't understand your illustration. So just to make sure we're all on the same page. 
You have five cards, they get five cards, you try to get a better hand than them. When you want to cheat in poker, I'm not saying anyone here has tried, but when you want to cheat in poker, if you were to, what you want to do is you want to deal your opponent a good hand so that they have the desire and intention to mess you up, to win, to take it all, to go all in. You deal them a good hand, a strong hand, so they get all this desire and intention to take all their money in and try to mess you up. But then you deal yourself the winning hand. Then you deal yourself the hand that wins, that's better than their good hand. Now you're like, wait, 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 what does it have anything to do with what you're saying? In the same way, people all around you have had their intentions and caused harm against you. But it never wins against God's intention to love you. The deck is rigged in our lives. No matter what people come at you with, we have God and his love for us and his intention to do good in our lives. No matter what they've been dealt and no matter what they throw at us, it won't phase us. They might have a full house of bad intention, but the king of kings, royal flesh, sweeps it away. That needed a bigger amen right there. That took a long time to write. It took me like 10 minutes to think of that line. And it incorporates into the sermon too. It's like a nice play on words there. If we rise to this perspective, life is not fair Not because you were abruptly discarded, cheated on, slandered against. Life isn't fair because those things no longer have authority over you. Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In all things, not just the good and the bad or the thing that happened on my my promotion and not my uh, let go or my release. In all things. Not just when your friend puts in a good word for you to get that job, when that same friend cuts you in the back, stabs you in the back, and you get fired. In all things. When that wonderfully kind California driver cuts you off on the road. In all things. When that ugly divorce leaves you bitter, alone, and hopeless. In all things. Please turn to your neighbor and say, in all things. Some of us have the something syndrome. Some things. Something syndrome, you know. Yeah, yeah, I can see how that promotion, you know, that, that, that was good, that was good, but not, not that, God. Not, not that. No, not, not, no way, not, not him, not her. No way, not what happened. Not what happened, not what they did to me. Not what they did to me. Some things are good. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can see that, but no, no. Rise to God's view. It's all things. I have a clip for us to see an illustration of this, how it plays out further. And it's about um, two brothers, so I'll let you watch. Anthony and Wilfredo Colon were tight. Two brothers living on the edge of trouble on the mean streets of New York outside their high crime housing project. 
I loved him because he always stood up for me. From a little kid, he would not even allow me to fight. That he would, he would stand up for me, whatever happened, because he always saw that good and you know that good that goodness in me. But that bond was severed by a vicious crime. It was right here where it happened. This is the spot where armed drug dealers shot unarmed Wilfredo to death. How did it affect me? Oh God! It just just put so much hate in my life. I hated everybody. I hated everything, and I just. Um, it made me to be a person, like a monster. But a chance meeting with his brother's killer led to this remarkable moment. My boy, yeah. Anthony embracing Michael Rowe, just freed after serving 20 years for Wilfredo's murder. It was like God gave me him as my brother. He replaced him, in a sense. Not replace him, but he was, he's another portion of um, my brotherhood. Anthony had prayed for reconciliation and end to the anger over losing Wilfredo. Michael feared retaliation. I was expecting that we would be, you know, there would be a fight, some type of physical violent altercation. I'm a firm believer that um, you know, a lot of people do a lot of talking about forgiveness, and, but they really don't forgive. Michael grew up in his 20 years in prison. He was taught by Julio Medina from Exodus Transitional Community, a program that helps inmates transition back into the community through higher education. Anthony came when Michael was awarded his master's degree. Not only does it lift uh, you know, that cloud of shame that he walks with, but uh, more importantly allows him to have a second chance with the blessings of, of the victim's brother. The unusual brothers will now work together with Exodus, reaching out to at-risk youth. God has a purpose for us. Us, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. God has a purpose for us. Don Lemon, CNN, New York. Anthony... Just incredible. This breaks my heart to see that. Breaks my heart. Anthony Cologne embracing the killer of his brother 20 years later. And he says in this interview, there's a connection with God that can allow you to see past what's in front of you. There's some people in here that can't see past what's in front of them. There's some people in here that can't see past what happened, what that person did to you. You just can't find it in your heart. And like TiVo, you just keep pressing play. You've TiVo'd it. Just keep pressing play and replay and replay and replay. But like Anthony Cologne just said, there is a view you can take, a different perspective you can have. If you just rose to God's view, you will be able to see past what's in front of you. Someone once said, forgiveness doesn't excuse their behavior. It prevents their behavior from destroying your heart. For the sake of your heart, rise to God's view. Rise to the view that says in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Rise to the view that says no acts committed against me can override God's love for me. Rise to the view that says life isn't fair because the deck is rigged in my favor. Refuse God's chair. Allow only God to be judge. Rise to God's view. See God's hand in man's malice. As Joseph said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good.
The third R, and final. Receive God's love. Now, Derek Kidner in his commentary on Genesis, he says, model God's love. I say receive because it fits with my three R's. <laughs> and because you can't model it without experiencing yourself. You can't model it without receiving it yourself first. I mean, you just can't give what you don't have. Very simple. The only way you can respond to mistreatment with practical affection is if you've had an incredible experience of forgiveness first. Joseph says this, I will provide for you and your family. The only way you can model kindness is if you've lived in it and been immersed in God's kindness first. Pastor Long said, there is a direct connection between your sense of being forgiven and your ability to give forgiveness. In other words, when I feel forgiven, I am more forgiving. The problem is, so many of us haven't accepted God's forgiveness in our own lives. We think to ourselves, you know, I'm not really that bad of a person. Or think to ourselves, God is like my earthly father. He's never going to forgive me for what I did. But once we understand the gravity of our sins and the offense against the highest almighty, holy living God, then we can catch a glimpse of the forgiven, the forgiveness he's given us. The truth is that Jesus has forgiven us. And until you've experienced this yourself, you will not be able to forgive those around you. Reverend King in his book, Strength to Love, says this, about forgiveness. Few words in the New Testament more clearly and solemnly express the magnanimity of Jesus' spirit than that sublime utterance from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We shall not fully understand the great meaning of Jesus' prayer unless we first notice that the text opens with the word, then. The verse immediately preceding reads thus, And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, they crucified him. Then, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Then, when he was being plunged into the abyss of nagging agony. Then, when man had stooped to his worst. Then, when he was dying a most ignominious death. Then, when the wicked hands of the creator, creature had dared to crucify the only begotten son of the creator. Then, said Jesus, Father, forgive them. That then might have well been otherwise. He could have said, Father, get even with them. Or, Father, let loose the mighty thunderbolts of righteous wrath and destroy them. Or, Father, open the floodgates of justice and permit the staggering avalanche of retribution to pour upon them. But none of these was his response. Though subjected to inexpressible agony, suffering, excruciating pain, and despised and rejected, nevertheless, he cried, Father, forgive them. That them is us. Every time we've worshipped sex and money, every time we've told a little white lie, every time we've broken God's heart with our lust and selfishness and worldly indulgences, we have committed treason against the king. It was our sins that killed the Savior. It was our sins that caused him to be whipped with braided leather. 
laced with glass and metal. It was our sins that pinned rusty nails through his hands and feet. It was our sins that caused the military spear to be driven into his side. But because of his sacrifice, now God can see us in our selfishness, pride, and disobedience and say, like in Hebrews 10, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. You have been forgiven. Do you feel forgiven? Do you feel that the wrongs you've committed against God has been wiped clean? If you do, forgiving others is the only other natural step to take. First, refuse God's chair. Next, rise to God's view. And finally, receive God's love. Try to hold a grudge with these three in mind. Try to hate your ex while deflecting judgment to the ultimate judge. Try to hold on to bitterness against your family while trusting in God's hand through man's malice. It's difficult. It's very difficult. But there must be a focus on God. Notice that each of these R's have the word God in them. It's because you have to focus on God if you want to be able to forgive. If we focus on the event, we will never forgive. But if we focus on God, if we rise to his view, if we refuse the judge's seat, if we receive his love, then the forgiveness flows. It wasn't easy for me. I grew up in a house, an Asian house, where a typical father would provide and be there physically. But I've never had a conversation with my father. 22 years of my life. Never had a talk with him. Never sat down with him. Never said, how are you? He never said that back to me. 22 years of my life. Never had a conversation. He provided and I was thankful for that. But as a typical Asian father, he was just there. And, in, and, and there was a little bit of resentment growing there was some anger happening, but through time, God stepped in, and he became my father. Through time, as I was in, investi, uh, investigating what this whole Christianity thing means for me, God met me where I was at and said, hey, it's okay what your earthly father is doing. I am your heavenly father. I am your father. And for 22 years, I did not have a conversation with that guy. But my heart started to soften. Instead of bitterness growing, instead of anger blossoming against him, I was met with God's love. I was met with God's forgiveness in my life. And over time, I was looking at him, I was saying, you know what? He isn't really a guy I should be hating. He should be, he should be there in my life. And, and I, I, there's no point in hating him. There's no point in not forgiving him because I've been forgiven of my sins. How can I hold this against him when God has treated me with, with this pure grace and love that I've experienced? So when I was 22, I, when, one night I said, you know what, I, I, I should probably have a talk with this guy. <laughs> I should probably have a talk with him. So I said, Dad, can we talk? 
He's like, uh, okay. We've never talked before. I mean, we just don't talk. <laughs> he got in my car, and we drove to a place in Fremont overlooking the city. And in that car, instead of pointing and angrily yelling and expressing and accusing, I said, God, I just said, Dad, I just never felt we've had a relationship. I felt that we've never had a conversation before. We've never talked. I, I feel like that's missing in my life. But the entire time, it was surreal because I felt a, a peace from God. Like, you know, this is me, but whatever happens here, you know, whatever happens here, it's okay because I have a heavenly Father. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to let you. I'm going to let go of this. But this is on you now. But but for me, I'm going to take care of what I need to take care of because God has me in His hands. And He just started weeping. He just started crying and crying and crying. And he couldn't stop. And in these broken words, he said, Lita, when you started going through your troubles, just trust me, I've been troubled. (laughs) As you might know from my previous sermons. He said, when you're going through your troubles, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to respond. But Lita, can you forgive me? I'm sorry. I heard that come out of my dad's mouth. I'm sorry. And I looked at him and I'm like, in my mind I'm thinking, I've already forgiven you. You know, like God has forgiven me. Like, yeah, of course. Of course. Of course I forgive you. Of course. That's the only natural thing to do. I've been forgiven by God. Of course. And so the first time in my life, when I was 22, I had a conversation with my father. I was like, Dad, hey. And we, we, and we hugged, which was crazy. <laughs> Just crazy. Paradigm shifting. Earth shattering. And we were talking like friends. Like just, I, I never had a conversation with him before. We were actually talking. And I was like, hey, you know, Dad, uh, I have a girlfriend, and her name is Jessica. She's, she's really cool. He's <laughs> like, really? Tell me more about that. And we started having a conversation. I started telling him about my life, about school, about my job. It was crazy. And he was like, yeah, how was high school? I was like, yeah, about that. <laughs> Forgiveness. Some of you won't forgive because you haven't experienced forgiveness for yourself. But see, I couldn't have approached him with that peace in my heart if I didn't first receive it from God. By trusting in God's presence in my past. I probably wouldn't have approached him at all if I was filled with bitterness and rage. But God stepped in and he brought me to his view. He said, Lita, that's my chair. He said, Lita, this is my love. Some of you won't forgive. 
because deep down inside you just don't trust in God's providence. Or some just won't get off the judgment seat, always pointing that finger. I invite you now to come experience this for yourself. Because we can be talking up here all day long. But if there hasn't been this radical, shattering, jaw-dropping experience with God of His love, of His forgiveness, of His grace that extends so freely, then this whole thing of forgiveness is a moot point. It's impossible. Because we'll just keep TiVoing that sucker and pressing replay, and it's just not going to work. So I invite you now. Bring about those hurts. Bring about those wounds and those people that have done those heinous acts. And try to rise to God's view with them in hand. Try to refuse God's judgment chair. And try to open your heart and receive.